Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know when you're just on the edge of your seat with anticipation, waiting for the arrival of something that means a lot to you? As we grow up, we maybe learn to temper some of the external displays of excitement. Uh, so maybe you weren't sprinting out to meet your mail carrier this week uh, to snatch your stimulus check before it even hit the mailbox. But our kids, they haven't learned to temper that yet. So we hear, oh, is it Easter yet? Is, it, is today my birthday? Is, is today the day that grandma's coming to visit? Kids' lives are outwardly buoyed by the hope of joys that they believe will soon come. I have memories of a small kid, uh, when I was a small kid, of, of this. Uh, this is little Tim. Uh, on the steps, I'd get my drink of water, sit on the front steps, waiting for my dad to get home from work in the evening. And when his car pulled in the driveway, I'd go running to him, jump into his arms. Here's the question I have this morning. As you look at this picture of anticipation, what did you sit on the edge of your seat waiting for this week? Not to get super spiritual here at the outset, but I guess here's what I'm really asking us to consider. Were we on the edge of our seats this week waiting in anticipation for something that can be obtained here on earth or for something that can only be obtained if it comes down from heaven? And I ask that because as we wrap up our series today in the life of Abraham, on the life of Abraham, we're going to read a summary description of his life that indicates that this man, Abraham, lived his life, at least the decisive moments of his life, on the edge of his seat in anticipation, not of anything available to him here on earth, but rather of something he knew had to come down from heaven. Would you turn with me to Hebrews 11? If you've got a Bible, Bible app, or Google it, you want to follow along with us, Hebrews 11. As you're turning there, let me back up and set the stage for us. Uh, Two weeks ago, we wrapped up the biblical narrative of Abraham's life. That narrative is found in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. We saw that that was a life of many failures, but a life that was marked at decisive moments with some pretty stunning faith. And all along, we saw that Abraham was a flawed man, nevertheless used by God because of God's abundant grace. For this last sermon in our series today, we're fast-forwarding about 2,000 years after Abraham lived to a summary account of his life written by an anonymous author in the first century A.D. This is found in the letter to the Hebrews. And in the 11th chapter, we have what is sometimes called the Hall of Fame of Faith uh, because it's a chapter in which this author recounts the faithful actions of all sorts of biblical figures. In this Hall of Fame, Abraham is actually given significant attention. Verses 8 through 22 deal with Abraham and his family, mostly with Abraham himself, though. And we actually already peeked at the end of this passage earlier in the series as verses 17 to 22 helped us understand what was going on in Genesis 22 as Abraham was willing to obey God's crazy command to sacrifice his son Isaac. Today we're zeroing in on verses 8 through 16 of Hebrews 11 as a means of understanding what drove Abraham's life as a whole. And so as we work our way through the scripture text this morning, I want to ask this question. What was the object 
of the eager anticipation that drove the decisive moments of Abraham's life? What was the object of the eager anticipation as he's sitting at the edge of his seat that drove the decisive moments of Abraham's life? To put a sharp point on it, maybe? During the time I'll spend preaching this sermon this morning, it's likely that at least one person here or listening at home will probably experience a rush of endorphins that's brought on by an Amazon alert that goes off in your pocket telling you that the package you've been waiting on is seven stops away. So I'm asking, was Abraham on the edge of his seat for the sorts of things that we're on the edge of our seats for? Or was it different for him? That's what we're exploring today. Okay, so before we launch into it, survey the passage, the structure of the passage with me. Uh, here's what we see. If you scan it, verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, I'll start with this repeated phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith. Those are markers. That phrase marks out for us three examples of Abraham and his family living by faith, but then it transitions in verse 13 to these all died in faith. So we've got living in faith, dying in faith. The second section, 13 to 16, goes into a little more depth, offering some clarifications about how one must live all the way till the end in order to die in faith. So it seems to work out like this, and this is how we'll structure it. Living in faith, verses 8 through 12, with three examples, and then dying in faith, verses 13 to 16, with three clarifications. So first, living in faith. Living in faith, chapter 11, verses 8 through 12 of Hebrews. Um, first example, in verse 8. Faith compels us to answer God's call, even when future details are uncertain. Faith compels us to answer God's call, even when future details are uncertain. I don't want you to have to scramble, you know, furiously writing today, so I'll send this PowerPoint out later in the week. So don't, if you're worried about that, don't, don't uh, concern yourself with that. Let's read verse 8 and see this play out. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Let's remind ourselves briefly of what we learned back in January when we uh, went to our first sermon in this series and we met Abraham back in Genesis 11 and 12. Abraham, or Abram at the time, had a good life at the time that God called him. Right? He was rich. He came from a notable family. He was comfortable. Then God comes along and says, hey, all these possessions you have, Abraham, all this staff you have working for you, all this respectability you've earned, this isn't your inheritance, actually. I actually have got something better for you, if you'll leave everything you know. Actual language in Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to what land? To the land that I will show you. The author of Hebrews reads that, the land that I will show you, and says, hey, Abraham didn't even know where he was going when he was called. All he knew that God was taking him to some place where he would receive an inheritance. Can you imagine doing what Abraham did? And I'm not talking about can you imagine doing it at like age 25 when you're all angsty anyway and it's either like follow God's crazy call or you're going to go backpacking in Europe for a year anyway. I'm talking about he's at 75. He's got everything to lose. Yet, uh, he drops everything, follows the call, does it? And here's the question we've got to press into. Why? Why did he make that choice? Because a voice that he believed to be God told him to do so? Yes, but I think there's got to be more than that. It can't be just that. The only reason 
The only way that Abraham takes such desperate measures to obey God's call and leave his country and his kindred and his father's house is, and I'm leaning on the future, the verses here in verses 9 and 10 actually, to, so this will make more sense in a minute, is if he came to the realization that the life he had, as great as it was, was lacking. More specifically, to use the language you're going to see in verses 9 and 10, we might say he realized his life was lacking a foundation. Have you experienced that realization yet in your own life? The realization that your life lacks a foundation? Here's what I mean. Some of us attempt to set family as the foundation for our lives, right? But we eventually realize we can't control our spouses or make our kids follow the script that we want their lives to follow. So we end up in conflicts with siblings and estrangements and separations and we realize, well, family isn't a foundation that can hold. Some of us attempt to craft an intellectual foundation for our lives. But as Tim Keller points out, we often realize eventually, wait, no matter how with it I am, no matter how uh, on the right side of history I am because I'm so well read and because I have this sophisticated education, my grandkids are actually going to think of me as backwards. They're going to cringe at things I said, and there's not a thing I can do about it. Because that's been true for any, every generation in human history. Right? So we realize my intellectual foundation is bound to eventually crumble. I can't hold. And of course, some of us attempt to put wealth or possessions as the foundation of our lives. But when we see, as we did in January, a bunch of Gen Zers on Reddit can almost sink a multi-billion dollar hedge fund just goofing around one week. We remember, oh yeah, this thing is very fragile. And it wouldn't be historically unprecedented for even my safest investments to vanish. Y'all, those foundations can't hold. Sooner or later, they all let us down. So sometimes... The tiny seed of faith that we need just looks something like this. I don't really know if this is a good idea to answer God's call. Or whether it's going to sink me to answer his call. He's not giving me any details about where he wants to lead me. It's terrifying. But I know for sure that none of these other things can hold me. I'm certain that family, money, achievement, those don't provide a foundation. So God, I'll answer the call. I'm yours. That's how the journey begins. That's how my journey began in 1998. Many of you remember exactly when you came to that same realization in your own life. Maybe for someone joining us this morning, this will end up being that moment for you. The only way we'll take the step to move out to an unknown destination is once we admit, as Abraham did, that our life as we know it has no lasting foundation. That was the longest one, don't worry, second example. Faith leads us to live on earth as sojourners in a foreign land. Faith leads us to live on earth as sojourners in a foreign land. Look at that in verses 9 and 10. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, that's his son and grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham and his son and his grandson after him go to the place that's promised to them, but they only ever get to live there as foreigners in tents. 
Think about that. You know that feeling, right? When you're on the road traveling, either in hotels or staying with family, even camping out. It's great for a while, but then you hit a point eventually when you just want to be back home, right? You just want to get back to the place where you're settled in, where you're comfortable, where it's, where it's home. From ages 75 to 175 when he died, Abraham never knew anything but that homesick longing. He's sleeping in tents the whole time. Tents, of course, don't have foundations. They're built to be temporary. So why didn't Abraham ever put up walls somewhere? Why didn't he ever build a city for himself? He was certainly rich enough. I think we're told the answer here, aren't we? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, here's what Abraham's hundred years of tent dwelling were meant to communicate to his family, to his neighbors, and to us. I, Abraham, am never going to be able to build a city whose foundations last. He knew he couldn't. Even, uh, after all, even the best human architects and builders, the Scott Crones of our world, they lay foundations that will one day crumble because the foundations share the limitations of the one who designed and built them. So Abraham knew that if he was going to live in a city with lasting foundations, the kind of city that God was promising him, he would need a city designed and built by God himself. And that's why, instead of building a permanent settlement with his own hands in a godless place, he waited for God to send a permanent city. And he purposed to decline any earthly citizenship. Instead, living as a citizen of that heavenly city from afar until the day when it would come. And as his neighbors could see, this wealthy king in their midst, with an army at his disposal, nevertheless choosing to dwell in tents like a nomad, they knew that his eyes were set on something beyond the here and now. Friends, in an important sense, we Christians aren't supposed to be at home here and now either. The New Testament speaks of us as aliens, strangers, sojourners on this earth, and so as such, here's a diagnostic question. What patterns in our lives communicate to our neighbors that our eyes are set beyond what's here and now? For Abraham, his tents communicated that this world wasn't his home. We don't need to live in tents, but what shows that this isn't our home? One answer is that your cars left your driveway this morning. That's no small thing. If we were content to make our home here and now, We'd all be able to find better things to do than get loaded up for church on a Sunday morning, a day to, that could be a day to sleep in and relax. What about our use of money? What about our ways of speaking about other people, our use of technology, the lessons we're teaching to our kids? In what ways are we opting to pitch tents, so to speak, while the rest of our neighborhoods erect, attempt to erect permanent settlements? Example two. Example three. Faith directs us to trust the faithfulness of the one who authored the promises. Faith directs us to trust the faithfulness of the one who authored the promises. Look at that in verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So we've got Sarah, Abraham's wife, thrown in the mix here. 
some confusion here among translators about whether Abraham is the subject of verse 11 or Sarah is, as it is in the ESV. I'll have to spare that debate now and summarize it in this week's highlights email. But whether it's Abraham or Sarah exercising faith in verse 11, what's the specific act of faith that's undertaken? You notice that? They considered him faithful who had promised. They considered him faithful who promised. Notice, that's just a little bit different than if the author had merely said Abraham and or Sarah considered the promise to be true, for example. It's a little different from that. The promise, in the way it's actually worded here, is secondary to the promise maker. They considered him faithful who promised. In other words, the promise is ultimately believed to be true because the one who uttered the promise is faithful. This is just one more reminder that Abraham is not the hero of his story. Sarah, not the hero either. There's only one who is utterly reliable, and he is the hero of Abraham's story and of all our stories. Faith, then, isn't some sort of heroic mustering up of courage to blindly accept something that seems outlandish. Rather, faith is hearing from God, the only reliable one, and taking him at his word, resting in his promise on the basis of who he is. So what about us this morning? Are we trusting in our faith in the promises? Or are we trusting in the faithfulness of the one who authored the promises? Catch that? Are we trusting in our faith in the promises? Or are we trusting in the faithfulness of the one who authored the promises? And I ask that because it's easy to think we're exercising faith in God while we're actually exercising faith in our faith. And we can tell we've done this one because when we sense our faith growing weak, as we all do from time to time, we panic as though the magic might no longer be there, it might no longer work. But when our faith is rooted instead in the character of the promise giver, then there's no need to panic in those moments when our faith wavers because we know that even a tiny little seed worth of faith in a faithful God, that's enough to bring the dead to life. And that's exactly what happened for Abraham and Sarah. When they exercised just a little bit of flawed, feeble faith, the result, to use the language of verses 11 and 12, from what was dead, namely Abraham's and Sarah's bodies, along with their reproductive functions, comes life. Okay, so look back at verses 8 through 12 with me. First section of our text, 8 through 12. If you remember your social studies classes, you might remember talk about human migration in terms of push factors and pull factors, pushing people to leave a place and pulling people to come to a new place. There's an implied push factor, so to speak, in verses 8 through 10 for Abraham and family, pushing them to leave Ur and then Haran, their places of origin, namely that in 75 years, Abraham had yet to find a foundation for his life. That reality pushes him to be willing to leave in search of that foundation. But then there's the pull factor in verses 9 and 10, a calling from God that convinces Abraham that there is a city with foundations coming. And then in verses 11 and 12, we saw the focus shift away from any push factors or pull factors to the one who's doing the pushing and the pulling. Right there, friends, in those verses, that wouldn't be a bad start. If you're here this morning and have yet to embark on a relationship with God, to first recognize 
that the discontentment you may have brought to church this morning is actually a push, a nudge from God, to to, in which he's showing you that the things you're placing the weight of your life on lack a foundation strong enough to hold up long term. And then secondly, to hear the call of God beckoning you to leave what you know in order to receive a city with foundations that he built for you. Today could be someone's Genesis 12 moment. The day you remember forever because you left the former things behind to embark on something new. But remember that after those three examples, we get three clarifications in verses 13 to 16. That's because plenty of folks embark on the journey, start out attempting to live in faith. Fewer finish strong by sticking with it all the way until they die in faith. In order to die in faith, as verse 13 says, the author thinks three clarifications are in order here. And by the way, these three roughly correlate with the first three examples, just kind of in reverse order. First clarification. Faith isn't just required in life, it's required in death. Faith isn't just required in life, it's required in death. Take a look at verse 13, the first part of it. These all, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. It's easy to overlook that not only did Abraham not receive his promised inheritance while he lived on earth, he didn't even receive his inheritance at his death. Do you realize that as we were walking through this story? At least not in full, right? The death, his death wasn't the finish line of his story of waiting. After all, the city with foundations that he and we hope for still has not to this day, come down out of heaven from God, as Revelation 21 tells us that it will. For that reason, when Abraham dies in Genesis 25, though the city has not yet come, we don't detect any confusion or disappointment that he hasn't seen the promises come true yet. He didn't live to see numerous descendants, as he was promised. His family didn't yet possess the land, as was promised. But, as a few commentators have pointed out, Abraham and his descendants did not allow the event of death to call into question the validity of the promises. They did not allow the event of death to call into question the validity of the promises. After all, they had seen, hadn't they, that death is sort of inconsequential to God's ability to follow through on his promises, isn't it? <clears throat> Abraham and Sarah's bodies were reproductively dead, for example. Yet, God brought life. As Abraham's there offering Isaac in Genesis 22, he's become certain that even if Isaac dies today, God can still make good on the promises he made about Isaac by raising Isaac from the dead. Abraham's family has learned that while death might be the great promise killer for humans, it's not a promise killer for God. And I wonder this morning what deaths in your life are threatening to call into question God's promises. What deaths in your life are threatening to call into question God's promises? I think about the Murrays in our church, right? Recently leaving their home 40 to 50 years. In a sense, that's a death, right? The death of a home, the death of a neighborhood for them. Do God's promises for them still stand? I think about you students who have experienced the death of a year plus of school, friends, sports, activities, have those deaths killed God's promises for you? Or 
can he still make good on them despite that death? Friends, as we remind each other on a morning like this one, that death is no hindrance to our God's ability to make good on his promises, and as we fight to believe that, we have an advantage that Abraham didn't have. Did you know that? His faith greeted God's promises from afar, according to the verse we just read, verse 11. See that language? That means not necessarily afar spatially, but afar temporally, time-wise. Abraham came to realize the fulfillment might be far in the future. But that's the difference, right? For us, it's much more near. Between when Abraham lived and when the writer to the Hebrews wrote our passage, Jesus came, ushered in a new era in which he died in our place and rose again. That means the next great event that's coming in salvation history will be his return, which will be followed by the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. That day is the object of our hope. And that day is 2,000 years nearer now than it was when Hebrews was written. It's 4,000 years nearer now than it was when Abraham waited on his front steps, so to speak, for it. And it's even nearer now than on the day when we first believed. So we continue to look for it, to wait for it. And even if some of us have to keep waiting for it on our deathbeds, we wait with undeterred expectation for God to fulfill his promises in this life or after our death. Second clarification. Faith doesn't merely help us to accept an alien status here on earth. It moves us to confess such a status. Not just to accept that we're aliens, strangers here on earth, but actually to confess such a status. Look at that in verses 13 and 14. Picking up in the middle of verse 13. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If you've been around here a little while, you know this isn't the, this isn't the first time you're hearing us talk about Christians being strangers and exiles here on this earth. A year and a half ago, we preached through 1 Peter where we saw that theme pop up almost every week. But even if we've come to acknowledge along the way that, yeah, I guess we are exiles here, on earth this isn't our home I don't know I don't I don't personally I don't really like it I'd rather it not be that way if I had a choice if there's a way to follow Jesus and kind of be accepted and let this earth be feel like home I'd rather that I don't know about you but now verses 13 and 14 of our text today ask us what if instead of reluctantly accepting our status as exiles what if we wholeheartedly self-identified as such. Abraham did. You see that word in verse 13, translated acknowledged? Acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth? This is a word, actually, it's often used for formal public declarations. So if you look at some other translations, you'll see that some of them use what's probably a more accurate word there, confessed. Confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And that's the thing. We saw two weeks ago that Abraham did just that publicly declared it genesis 23 4 when sarah dies remember this abraham publicly appears before the people of the area and what does he declare i am a foreigner and a stranger among you that's the moment that the writer of the hebrews is thinking of when he uses the exact same two words here foreigner and stranger uh how's our how's our text translated strangers and exiles on earth he's pointing out that Abraham didn't just begrudgingly accept his status as a foreigner and a stranger. He actually confessed it. You see that in verse 
14, people who speak thus, speak as Abraham did. Friends, it's good news, actually, that our citizenship, that our hope, that our future aren't here. When we publicly confess, when we publicly declare ourselves to be foreigners and strangers here, and to be content as such, the things of this world, they can't shake us in the same way they did anymore. Example, engage in a thought experiment with me. If my deeply internalized identity becomes what we see here in this passage, namely, that I'm a stranger who lives in a tent because this isn't my home and I lack the rights or permanence of a citizen here. How is any election, for example, going to cause my life to feel like it's crumbling? Life only rises and falls on the outcome of an election if I was hoping to make a home here. Now I know, I mean, I know some of my friends on the right and on the left will be unhappy with that application. On the left, it's something like this. Tim, easy for you to say that life shouldn't crumble over an election. You don't belong to the demographic groups who are typically oppressed in this country, you might say. On the right, something like this. Tim, if you weren't devastated by the November election, you've got your head in the sand with regards to the destructiveness of policies that the left wants to enact. And maybe one or both of those critiques is right. But the fact is, for 20 centuries now, Christians around the world have endured worse than any American has had to endure under the previous administration or is having to endure now under this one. And they've done so with joy, even singing as they faced government-sponsored execution. I mean, in the chapter right before this one, the author talks about how it was already happening at the time this text was written. Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and, a, and an abiding one. That seems so strange to our ears today. Can you imagine American Christians joyfully accepting the plundering of our property today? We're far better known at the moment, sadly, for protesting anything we perceive to be an attempt to plunder our property or to plunder our standing in society, our status here. For Christians, in other times and places, friends, it wasn't so. Even when they were activists, as we all should be from time to time, they weren't picketing their own mistreatment or loss of status. It was different for them, because they hadn't made their home here like we have. They internalized that citizens of the heavenly city are actually foreigners here. And when we really come to believe that we're foreigners here, that has a massive effect on what we feel entitled to expect this sinful world to give us. Final and most brief clarification. Faith doesn't just prompt us to depart from our homeland, it keeps us from going back. Faith doesn't just prompt us to depart from our homeland, it keeps us from going back. Look at that in verses 15 and 16. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
That word therefore in verse 16 is key. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Why is he not ashamed to be called their God? Because, verse 15, they kept their eyes on the better country and didn't avail themselves the opportunity to return to where they came from. You see that? Make no mistake, they could have gone back if they wanted to. Verse 15, it must have been tempting at moments to go back to the place where they're comfortable, the place where they came from before God called them. But God isn't ashamed to be called their God for the same reason that Jesus isn't ashamed to be called their brother back in Hebrews 2 because their faith wasn't a flash in the pan. They endured in faith until the end instead of returning to where they came from when things got hard. And when things get hard for us, as they will for every single one of us, and we're tempted to shuffle back to where we came from, to the life that we were living before we heard Jesus' calling, that temptation can take many forms. Some are tempted to flirt with past substance use. Some are tempted to flirt with past romantic pursuits, past misuse of money. Don't go back there. It's not enough, friends, that we departed from our homeland. God wants to give us the faith that will keep us from ever going back. Our big idea today is this. Let's live now in eager expectation of the heavenly city to come. Let's live now in eager expectation of the heavenly city to come. Look at this picture again with me. I'm ashamed to confess that for me this week, when I was on the edge of my seat with the anticipation like this, it wasn't really about the heavenly city. It was about a handful of other things, earthly things, things that won't last. But if I'm honest, I found myself, as I was prepping this sermon, making excuses to God for that. Like, God, if I was living in Abraham's day, I would have longed for heaven too, right? Old Abe, he didn't have what we have. Listen, I went to Best Buy the other day, and I kid you not, you guys probably already know this, I learned that apparently 4K TVs, which I thought were like only for the rich and famous, are now traditional they're the comparison to what's now the state-of-the-art 8K TVs that they have all over that place. And those 8K TVs that we have display shows that have used algorithms to keep us maximally entertained with no commercials. And we have the ability now to conveniently travel unprecedented distances just to get away for a weekend. We have power to connect with people on the other side of the world instantly by crystal clear video on a device that can fit in our pockets. We have cars and bikes to take us to parks and playgrounds and museums where our senses and our kids' senses will be stimulated. How in the world are any of us supposed to sit on the edge of our seats in eager anticipation of heaven when we have all this? But the fact is, our generation isn't actually categorically different from Abraham's in that regard, are we? The worldly pleasures of Abraham's day exceeded those of any generation before him. And 50 years from now, what we have now, those 8K TVs, will seem to our grandkids like what Abraham had seems to us. The fact is that every generation is pulled to fall in love with the things of this earth and to set our hopes here on foundations that cannot hold. But in this generation, like in every generation, we're called instead 
to see those things for the flimsy foundations they are and to live instead in eager expectation of the heavenly city to come. That may not happen for you and I until God brings us to the point where we find out, often painfully, that what we've hoped in here has no foundation, that it won't last, that it's fleeting. If you haven't yet reached that point, you might consider filing this message away for that day when the city you built comes crashing down around you. And on that day, take comfort. There's a heavenly city that's been prepared for you. Its foundations were laid at the cost of the blood of the God-man, the only perfect human, God himself in the flesh. Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago to die on that cross to make us heirs of his heavenly city by faith. Let's encourage one another to live now in eager expectation of that city. Lord, I'm just pulled by the things of this world. They've got their claws in me. I can't stop at a red light without reaching for my phone to get that next hit. Lord, I want desperately to regain that feeling I've experienced at times in my life to be sitting on the edge of the steps waiting not for any earthly thing but longing for the city that's to come. Lord, many of us have tasted that at least for a moment in our lives. Make us a people, make us a church for whom that's characteristic. Make us a people who, for whom that defines our life and our existence as it did for Abraham in decisive moments in his life. Thank you for your son, the blood that he shed to cover over and pay for our disobedience, for our running to the things of this world, for our longing that's misplaced. Thank you that that city's coming and that we will one day get to rejoice and worship you together forever in perfection of the city of foundations. In Jesus' name, amen.